0: It is so good to be with you this morning. We appreciate your presence, especially if you're visiting with us. We are certainly delighted that you are here with us, and we want you to come back and be with us at every opportunity that you do have. If you will be opening your Bibles to Philippians 3, we're going to be noticing in just a few moments, verses 7 through 17. Philippians 3... 7 through 17. In his writing, Paul said, But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ? Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore as many as be perfect, be thus minded, and if anything, ye be otherwise minded. God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk, so as ye have us, for an ensample. Gary Enrig wrote in his book, Quality Friendship. He said this, Out of the furnaces of war come many true stories of sacrificial friendship. One such story tells of two friends in World War I who were inseparable, they had enlisted together, trained together, were shipped overseas together, and fought side by side in the trenches. During an attack, one of these men was critically wounded in in field, in a field filled with barbed wire obstacles, and he was unable to crawl back to his foxhole. The entire area was under a withering enemy crossfire, and it was suicidal to try to reach him, yet his friend... "'decided to try. "'Before he could get out of his own trench, "'his sergeant yanked him back in "'and ordered him not to go, saying, "'It's too late. "'You can't do any good, "'and you'll only get yourself killed. "'A few, man, a few moments later, "'the sergeant turned his back, "'and instantly the man was gone after his friend. "'A few minutes later, he staggered back, "'mortally wounded with his friend, "'now dead in his arms.' The sergeant was both angry and deeply moved. What a waste, he blurted out. He's dead and you're dying. It just wasn't worth it. With almost his last breath, the dying friend replied, Oh yes it was, Sarge. When I got to him, the only thing he said was I knew you'd come, Jim. One of the true marks of a friend is that he is there when there is every reason for him not to be. That is a true mark of a friend. When it is sacrificially costly, that is the true mark of a friend. Solomon put it this way. Solomon said, "...a friend loves at all times." And a brother is born not in adversity, but for adversity. A brother is born for adversity. That's exactly what our Lord did for us, wasn't it? When there was every reason for Him to allow us to die in our sins, He didn't do that. He was born for adversity. Because of his example, we have a whole lot of examples written in literature just like the one we just read. But those aren't the only examples that we have, are they? There are other examples. We have very personal examples in our own lives. We're fortunate enough to have friends in this life upon whom we can depend. We have friends in this life upon whom we can rely, and we call them friend. And they help us when our adversity comes along. Friendship is a very special thing, isn't it? And it ought to be celebrated at every single opportunity. But I want us to understand something. When we hear this phrase, mark them, doesn't that almost automatically bring to our minds a negative connotation? Because there is a negative connotation associated with that. Not negative in the sense that it's wrong to do it, but negative in the sense of us having to do it. We do mark those Paul, who Paul said walk unworthily. But that's not what he's talking about here. I want us to understand there are some times when we are to mark people because it is a good thing. Listen again to Paul's words. Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk so as you have us as an example. Mark them, because they're your example. Mark them because of the way in which they live their lives. Mark them because they are living like Christ asked them to live. But before we can fully understand and truly glean from this passage what Paul intended for us to glean, we need to understand exactly what was he getting at? What was his intention by using this phrase, mark them? Well, to mark means to take aim at or to spy. That is, to regard, consider, take heed, to look at or on, to compare. That's what mark means. We need to be able to mark those who are deserving of being marked. So the question then must be, what makes a person worthy of marking in this sense? What is it about someone where we can look on them, we can look upon the way in which they live their lives, and we can say, they ought to be marked? Well, We mark a person, we're going to notice first, our first point, based on their faith. Let's begin with that. Determination. Determination is absolutely necessary to live a life of faith in this worldly existence. We must have the correct priorities in our lives, right? If we're going to live a life of faith, we're going to be someone worthy of being marked, We have to have our priorities in order. Let's go back to the revelation in Christ revealing to John a message He wanted sent to the seven churches of Asia. Each one of these congregations of the Lord's people in Asia received a message. I want us to notice the one that He sent to Ephesus. Revelation 2 verse 5. The Lord saying, Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, Remember where you were prior to you no longer being there. He says, and repent and do your first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except you repent. Ephesus, members of the church of Christ in Ephesus, listen to what I'm telling you. Remember what you used to be. You used to be worthy of being marked because you were an example. Return to that, or I'm going to come and take your candlestick. You remember earlier in his ministry he admonished his disciples saying, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things shall be added unto you. Matthew six thirty three. See, we have to have our priorities in order. We have to understand what comes first and what should not come first. Now there is a twofold commandment in that statement. First of all, we are to seek His kingdom, which represents His rule in our lives. His sovereignty in our lives. Secondly, we are to live righteously in seeking His commandments and His kingdom. That is, to live in such a way that people view us and understand us to be in in a way that God knows we're righteous. Seek God's kingdom and be righteous a twofold commandment. And none of that can be accomplished unless we have a desire to live that kind of a life. We can't be marked for good unless we are faithful, unless we are determined. Well, how do we do that? It's one thing to make a statement, well, we have to live a righteous life. We have to seek the kingdom of God, but we have to understand how we go about doing that. One of the goals that we have in place here for our Bible classes and for the messages heard from the pulpit is we need to make today application to what was written almost 2,000 years ago. Because if we can't do that, it doesn't make any difference what was written 2,000 years ago unless we can apply it to us and we can mine from the place in Scripture where these jewels have been left. How do we cultivate our determination? How are we supposed to be able to withstand the attacks of Satan when they come along in this world? Well, let's listen again to the words of Paul. Ephesians 6, beginning with verse 13. He says, "...Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand, stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. He says, above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplications for the saints." When we properly prepare ourselves in this life, we are able to withstand the devil. How did the Lord do it recorded for us, Matthew four? Turn these stones into bread, prove you're the Son of God. It is written. Bow down and worship me, and I'll give you all of these cities and places that you see or that I've shown you in a moment in time. It is written. Go ahead and cast yourself off the pinnacle of the temple and prove to us that the Scripture will be fulfilled, that you won't even dash your foot against a stone. It is written. It is written. It is written. How do we prepare ourselves? We have to know what's written. We have to be able to say, I'm going to live that way. We don't have to have a Ph.D. in anything to understand what the Bible says. And I'm thankful for that, aren't you? Because I don't have one. I'm thankful that I can open up the pages of the Bible, I can listen to instruction, and I can make application to my life, but I have to want to do it. I have to put that first in my life. I have to say, that's how I'm going to live. I'm going to be exactly what God wants me to be. When we prepare ourselves, we're ready when the time comes to stand face to face with God. Isn't that comforting to know that I can do that? Our determination to God can be seen in our love for His Word. We better love the Word of God. We better live on what He has said. That's what Jesus said. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceedeth from the mouth of God. That is life. And that's what I want. Paul warned the brethren in Thessalonica. He said, And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they received not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. 2 Thessalonians 2, 10-12. How was it that God sent this spirit, this deluded spirit, to deceive them? Did He cause them to sin? Did He cause them to reject God? That's not what He did. They chose to not love the truth. They chose to not know what's written in His book of truth. And just like Pharaoh, because God demanded something, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He hardened his own heart. Well, he hardened it because God said you have to do certain things. So I guess God hardened his heart through commanding him something. But he chose to harden his heart. We have to have a love of the truth. We're not going to have great faith unless we have a love of the truth. We must love it if we're going to be blessed by God. And that's the gospel of Christ. That's what he came to earth when He had every reason not to come to earth. Even though He had every reason not to die for us on the cross, He did that. So how can we not love His wisdom? When Philip asked Jesus to show him and the other apostles the Father, do you remember what Christ said? John fourteen ten. He said, "Believest thou not, that I am in the Father, and He's in me. Then He asked Him, He said, Philip, have I not been with you long enough for you to see the Father in me? How? How could he do that? He should have marked our Lord for an example, shouldn't he? He should have been able to look on the life of Christ and say, I see the Father. I see it in your actions. I see it in your love. I see it in your sacrifice. I don't have to look at Him with my physical eyes. I don't have to have another manifestation of God in front of me to be able to see the first person of the Godhead. I see the second person of the Godhead in physical form. Isn't that good enough? I'm in the Father. The Father's in me. When you see me, you see Him. When you see Him, you see me. That's what he's talking about. Christ's great faith and determination was all Philip should have needed to have seen. We mark people because of their great faith, that great determination. But we also mark them because they're dependable. If someone has great faith, they can't, they're can't. they not only determined, they're dependable. What does that mean? Paul marked his ne- the nephew of Barnabas for that very reason, didn't he? Notice what he said. He asked Timothy in his letter, he said, Only Luke is with me. Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. When we're dependable, we're profitable. We're profitable to God. But in order to be profitable, we have to be dependable, right? People have to be able to depend upon us. Speaking of Onesimus, as he wrote a letter to his friend Philemon, he said, which in time past was to thee unprofitable, but now is profitable to thee and to me. Why? He obeyed the gospel. He became what God needed him to become. He became profitable. His faith was one of determination. He became dependable. Well, how are we to be dependable in God's service? Let's make some kind of application. What exactly is Paul talking about as it resonates with us today? What do dependable people do? Do they keep their appointments? I think so. I think if we would describe someone as dependable, we would say they keep their appointments. Well, we have to determine that we want to do that. We learn from the Father that He keeps His appointments, that He does what He says He'll do, don't we? Notice what James said. He said, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or variableness or shadow of turning. See, following that example, we have to keep our appointments. Well, what appointments exactly do faithful people keep? Well, first of all, we have to keep the appointment of salvation, don't we? There is appointed a time when we're going to be judged. There is a time of salvation. What did Paul say? Today is the day of salvation. We've got to keep that appointment. Notice what the writer of Hebrews said. Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels prove steadfast, he's speaking of the old law, handed down to Moses on Mount Sinai, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard Him? If every sin received a punishment under the old law, if everything was recompensed under the old law, How can we escape today if we neglect so great a salvation as that which Christ brought into the world and died on the cross so we could have it when He had every reason not to? What's the best friend anyone can have? The one who will lay down His life for you, right? And that's what Christ did. We have to keep the appointed times of our worship too. Wasn't it David that said, I was glad when they said unto me, Come into the house of the Lord. Psalm 122 one i I've done a lot of traveling around in different parts of the world and in this country in efforts of preaching the gospel. And you know, every once in a while you'll come across someone who it appears to them that it's more of a burden than a blessing to congregate with the Lord's people. What should it be? We ought to... We ought to have the attitude that we can't wait till our periods of worship for collective worship come around. We we ought to have the attitude of I can't wait to go back and be with those of such great faith. Those people who I've marked as examples for me. When we're profitable and dependable, we're going to keep our appointments. Those are people that we mark. Those of great faith. But we also have other things we look at. What about marking someone because of their family? Let's talk about that. Our examples in this life that we ought to mark are those who have dedicated their lives to God. Those who have given themselves. First of all, they became a faithful Christian themselves. We see that throughout the New Testament, don't we? What about Timothy? Paul saw the great faith in Timothy who was in whom first? Your mother and your grandmother, Lois and your Nicey. See, they became Christians. I can't help someone until I first help myself, right? We've used this example. I've been on airplanes and they go through the, the safety procedures and they say when that little mask pops down out of the ceiling, don't worry about putting it on your child or your friend until you first put it on yourself. If you can't breathe, and you pass out from lack of oxygen, who are you going to help? If I'm lost in this world, how can I help someone else find their way? I have to have my sight first, don't I? I have to have my bearings first. I have to have dedicated myself to God. And those people, how would they get there? By believing the inspired Word of God, Romans ten seventeen. So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Look, it doesn't matter what the preacher says. It doesn't matter what the eldership says. It only matters what the Bible says. Now, when the preacher repeats it, and when the elders help to enforce it, yes, it is important to listen to them. But it only matters what the Word of God says. And that's how we become faithful in this life. That's how we become a part of God's family. Faith. What comes next? Well, what does faith do for me? It grows in my heart. It causes me to want to change my life. I want to pattern after what God has patterned. I want to be like those who I've marked. Repentance. Turning my life over to God. Acts 3.19 Be converted. Repent and be converted. Right? That's what Peter said. What comes nat- next? Naturally. I've turned my life. Why? Why have I turned my life over to God? because I believe Jesus Christ is the son of God. Romans 10:10, confession unto salvation. That's what the Ethiopian Eunuch said. I believe Jesus Christ is the son of God. Naturally submitting to baptism. That's what the Eunuch did and they walked down into the water both Philip and the Eunuch and he baptized him. Well what does that do for me? It, that's the culminating act, isn't it? Is baptism more important by the way? No, it's not more important, but it's just as important. That's a culminating act. What did Peter say? The like figure, talking about the example of Noah being on the ark and the water lifting up the ark, 1 Peter 3, verse 20. Verse 21, he says, The like figure, or the same example, where baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a clear conscience toward God. Putting us into the body of Christ. Galatians 3, 26 and 27. Devoting their lives to Christ, these people that we mark, they're going to be saved in the end, Matthew 10, because they're steadfast. They're determined. They're dependable. They have a great faith and they've brought it into their family. So let's mark them. Why is that so important? Christ asks the people and the disciples, Mark eight thirty four through 38, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself, Right? Take up your cross. You can't love your family more than me. You can't love the things of this world more than Christ. We have to take up our cross. What does that mean? Have you thought about that? I think some people have the misconception when we take up our cross, we're carrying it right in here into the building with us. That's our burden to bear. Well, we park that at the door when we come in here, don't we? We take that cross out into the world. What's a cross used for? It's a killing device. That's how our Lord lost His life. You carry that with you. When the old man of sin jumps up and he wants to return, we use that cross, we put him to death because we don't love things of this world more than we love Jesus. That's why it's so important. There's nothing more important than than or as priceless as our very souls. That's why we turn over our body and our soul to Jesus. Notice what Paul said in Romans 12, 1-2. He talks about, How God wants us to present ourselves a living sacrifice. Not being conformed to this world, he says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, by the gospel, right? That's how we do it. But it isn't just in their own lives that these people that we mark have transformed their family. Not just in their own lives, their personal lives. What about their lineage? We remember Hannah, 1 Samuel 1, 11. She gave her child to God. God blessed her with a child, and so she did what is absolutely necessary. I'm going to give my child to God. Does that mean we ship our children off somewhere else and let them grow up with an old man and they learn all about God that way? No, that's not what he's talking about. That's the way Hannah did it, and that's okay. So we rear them up in the nurture and the admission of the Lord. We're to teach them, show them, and lead them in the ways of God, Deuteronomy chapter 4. That's what he says. If we're going to be able to help our children get to heaven, we have to train them to be that way, right? We bring them up, we train them. But how do we train them? Teaching them the gospel. Demonstrating to them how Christ, when He grew, He He grew in favor in stature with both God and man. He knew how to live in relationship with God. He knew how to live in relationship with His fellow man. And every child that comes up is obligated to submit to that training. Children, be obedient to your fathers and your mothers. Too often, I think, we think in physical terms when we talk about getting our child a good start in life. Now, we want to get them a good start in life financially, no doubt about it. We we need to do all we can do to do that. But what is most important? A good start spiritually speaking. We have to train them in that way. Because of that, We're going to mark those who we learn that from. We're going to mark those who have a great faith, those who have a wonderful family and live godly within their family. But there's another reason that we want to do some marking. We mark them because of the great friendship that we share with them, right? Now, friendship can be good or it can be bad. But friendship has been important to us over the years, hasn't it? What about friendship is it that is so nice, that, that makes us be able to mark someone as an example? It reassures us. Friendship reassures us. They encourage us by words and by works, right? I have a friend, when I was living in Memphis, working with the Cordova congregation, I would come around vacation Bible school every year, and I would always get him to help teach a class. And without fail, every single year, he would, I would walk up to him because he knew it's VBS time of the year, and he'd say, I'm not doing it. Not doing it this year. And then I would just kind of keep talking to him, and I'd say, now this is the plan, and this is the topic, and this is the grade, and, and he said, say, I'm not doing it. And then I would be having a folder in my hand, and I'd say, now here you go, and I really appreciate your help. And you know what he did every single year? Taught. Taught the class. He helped to reassure me that I could depend on him. Now, he didn't necessarily want to teach the class, but he did. I was speaking with a friend of mine just the other day about some things that that I had in mind for the congregation, and and at first mention he just didn't seem too excited about it, but you know what? He's going to help, and I knew he would. That's what friends do, right? Faithful friends reassure us by the lives they lead. What do they do for us? They promote godliness. They promote obedient service. They promote proper worship. They do it by using the words of God as their guide and not the words of Men as their guide. The world tells us that anything we do is fine as long as it feels good for us to do it, right? As long as it helps us or someone else in the end. the, the, the ends justify the means. Well, That's not what God says. You know, my experience with our faithful friends here is an example to be followed. That's been my experience. I know it's been yours also. When we're doing something around the building, guess what? We have plenty of help. When we're over at a member's home to help in the yard to do something like that, we've got help with doing that. That reassures us and encourages us, doesn't it? We know we're not out there doing it all by ourselves. We've got people of like precious faith, people that want to join in. But that isn't the only reason that friendship is so special to us. Friendship is special to us because it won't be removed. Now, we might be removed by time and space. We might even be removed by loss of life or something like that. But does it really end there? Time and space has no power over our thoughts and our memories, does it? Time and space doesn't keep us from recalling the things that we've enjoyed in this life and with whom we've enjoyed them. You know, we hope for all types of things, don't we? We hope for things concerning our children, our jobs, and just our lives in general. We hope for those things. But the greatest hope is to have a desire to be in heaven. And guess who's going to be in heaven? The faithful. Guess who we mark as examples? The faithful. Guess who we're going to be able to spend, if you could spend it, eternity with in heaven? The faithful. So, what are some of the reasons that make us long for that? Well, obviously, we don't want eternal punishment, but that's not the only reason. We want to be able to surround the throne of God in song and praise for all eternity and enjoy His presence with those that we so dearly love and those who we have marked. I think we ought to do more marking than what we do. Christ said this. He said, Many shall come from the east, and and she'll sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. There's going to be a beloved fellowship in heaven. I look forward to that. In his chapter on love, Paul ended with this statement. He said, And now bideth faith, hope, love, but the greatest is love. Why? There's no place for hope and faith in heaven. We will have realized for what we hope. We will see with our physical eyes, not our eye of faith, the very presence of God. But love, it's not going anywhere, is it? So let's mark those people. The friendships that we make in this world can continue and will continue into the next if we're faithful. So when time and eternity parts us in this life, it's not going to be goodbye. In reality, it's going to be, I'll see you later. Keep my spot in line, right? I look forward to seeing you. Now that may be in heaven for some of us. That's okay. That's okay. But we'll still be together. Those are the people that we mark. We begin that, again we talked about it, by obeying the gospel. We can't mark someone who hasn't obeyed the gospel for good. We talked about how to do that. If you haven't, do that today. Don't leave here not able to look forward to the appearing of Christ. Yet if you have done it, perhaps you've gotten off track just a little bit. Come back to the Lord. Come back to Him today. If you need to answer this invitation, do that now as we stand and as we sing.